0: Every once in a while, you get a real barn burner of an episode, and maybe there's a little bit of a pun here because my guest is William F. Gray, author of The Man Behind the Door, which there may or may not allegedly be some burning of structures like barns or houses. You'll have to read it to find out. It is my very favorite self-published book that I've ever read, and you'll hear me gush about it constantly in this episode. So I don't want to give much else away and get you right into the interview where all the meat is, but I have to ask you if you're listening right now, if you enjoy my show, consider purchasing the seven figure marketing mindset for novelists as a pre order. If you pick up a copy right now, what I will do for you is I will deliver to your inbox
1: a free recording of the audiobook. One month or month or month or month or month. You'll get it a whole month before anybody else can read the book, including you. If you buy a pre-order copy of the ebook right now, so go ahead and pause the show.
0: You can buy it straight from the show notes, or you can go to Amazon and look up the Seven Figure Marketing Mindset for Novelists. Get that ebook so you get the audio book for free. If you
1: really want to wait for the pre-order on the paperback copy of the book, that will be coming soon, but I highly encourage you. You're getting a great deal with the ebook and the
0: audiobook free. It's the only way you're going to get the audiobook free, and that's the most expensive way to buy the book. So, pick it up today. Without further ado, please enjoy this amazing interview with William F. Gray, author of The Man Behind the Door.
1: I'm the Reluctant Book Marketer, and I've got just one question for you. Do you see your novel as a million-dollar asset? Because if you don't, and you want to, you're in the right place. This is the only show for novelists who want to shift their mindset away from fear and toward abundance, because you can sell more books than you ever dreamed when you believe in what you're doing
0: see yourself staying there long-term or are you hoping to get like fully off the ground and writing is going to be what pays the bills and makes you famous
2: so it's always been been long-term here but it's a situation where like now that i'm you know i'm getting traction i'm working really hard at it, and it's something i've always wanted to do i think it's something that i would love to get off the ground um i don't know if i'd ever go you know completely off the grid you know just write full time and not do anything else i think i'd stay part-time or do something different um but, um, but yeah, I, it's, cause I like the work that I do. It's a uh, nice having those relationships with people and it's, it's uh, rewarding to be able to go home and be like, yeah, I made a
0: difference today. So. I feel like your mindset about fiction is a little bit limiting. If I'm being honest, like, I think that your book uh, can yeah. change more lives than you can change the pharmacy. That's my, oh, belief. Absolutely. I, I think, I think that your novel, honestly, it hit me in such a powerful way that uh, you had this great family story and this story about addiction and this story about like love and loss. And I like, I know that you can do a lot of good in your position. My mom is a lifelong NICU nurse. She did it for 50 years. Um, She changed a lot of lives. She saved a lot of lives. She showed compassion to a lot of parents who were in really difficult situations and i'm telling you that like the best stephen king novel i read is mm-hmm. more powerful than than her whole yeah. career there's something like really honorable about writing fiction and uh it's it's clear you have a, a really great talent um so you Thank know you. Let, me, yeah. let me let me challenge you to to yeah. to see like the bigger picture that possibly yeah. you can change the world but I also don't want to take away your voice. Tell me why you think right now that that you want to stay part time. I mean, what if you did reach a million readers? Would that would that change your tone at all? Is it that you limit it, your ex, like what you think you can do?
2: It it could, would definitely change it. I don't know that if I would stay in the same position if I were to uh, to get that many readers and to become that accomplished. I think, you know, I would still stay involved in the business. Um, this okay. business has been really good to me. The owners are, are really good to me. Yeah. Um, and I, I feel like I get a lot of a lot of the interactions that I get in this job serve as potential inspiration for me. People telling me stories, just chatting mm-hmm. with people. I can't tell you how many times that I've heard someone come in and say some crazy off the wall, just simple saying that I've never heard before. And I said, I'm going to write that down and use it in a book later on. Yeah. So um, the the interaction with the public has been really good. I, I mean, yeah, for my next book that I've been working on, I have an inspiration of a name based off of a, a completely different name, but just the mm-hmm. the way that the name is structured, I put that in the book because so I was like, that's a terrible name.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I understand where you're coming from there too. I mean, yeah. so much of the novels that I've written have come in directly out of the W-2 jobs that I worked. Um, yeah. I have people in the insurance industry because I've worked in the insurance industry. I have people mm. who are trunk slammers that are selling stuff to gas stations. Because yeah. I was a trunk slammer. So I, I definitely understand the importance of that. I kind of like, not the way I was expecting this conversation to go, but there's part of me that wants to keep pushing at this a little bit to yeah. see if we can like, expand what you see as a possibility. Now, yeah. here's a couple of things. One is you clearly have a big heart. You, you talked mm-hmm. about the loyalty that your company has shown you, and you want to show yeah. that loyalty back to them. Do you think that your employer would want you to stay with them if you were selling as many copies of your books as Stephen King? Do you think that they would <laughs> want you to limit yourself that way?
2: Um, selfishly, yeah. But they've been really supportive. So I so I'm actually selling my book here at the store. Um mm-hmm. that's where a lot of my sales are coming from. Cool. And they've they sell through the register and collect my sales tax, but they don't take a cent a of it. They they give me they cut me a check every single month nice. and it's for the full amount of what the the sale of the book is. They don't take anything and from the get go, I said, Hey, you know, I want to talk to you guys about this. I'll offer you, you know, I want to, you know, come up with some kind of deal. And they were like, no, like sell your mm-hmm. book through the register. We'll That's collect really it. Cool. And we'll cut you a check at the end of the month. Um, but we just want to support you in this because it's really cool. So um, cool. I do definitely think that they would want me to stay. Um, hmm. We're small family owned and it's a, it's a tight knit group and all of us have like a different thing that we bring to the board and all of us are, are really valuable in that way. So I think that selfishly they want me to stay, but I don't think that they would be uh, upset or hurt in any way. I think they'd support me no matter what.
0: That's really interesting. So I feel like I am surrounded right now. I live in a small town called Oakland, mm-hmm. Nebraska. We have about 900 people who live here. I live here because my wife is related to 75% of the people in the town. Uh that's obviously yeah. a joke, but she's related to a bunch of people in town and yeah. her family and everybody who uh, is here is part of what's called Dell Peterson and associates. Her grandfather started the business. It's an auction business. Okay. Um, and, and like, I would say a large portion of the, that family all works for uh, DPA all doing that. And I, I, I definitely see like the tight knit that you're talking about in the community yeah, yeah. and the, 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 singular push to make that business really big. And so I understand where you're coming from. To me, it may just be a different way of thinking is like, writing is one of the more difficult things that you Mm -hmm. can do. You have a lot going up against you to get a book finished. And the minute that you get the book finished, you have a lot going up against you to get it properly edited and designed. Mm -hmm. And then putting it out into the world is a whole new challenge. Um, This is way more than a full-time job if you want to market Absolutely. it and get it out there. So talk to me about that. I mean, do you, do you see there being an opportunity for you to to grow much from where you're at? Or do you think that you're going to be limited by choosing to stay in kind of that tight knit community? Do you think that their influence will keep you smaller than you could be otherwise?
2: Um, I would certainly hope not, but that's always a possibility. Um, it's a, you know, working a lot of hours during the, during the winter, during peak sick, like sick season and then flu shots and that kind of thing. Um, that's usually the time that I work the most, but they're really supportive, um, of me having like a, I usually have a day off during the spring and summer and they're really supportive of that. They don't usually request that we work extra unless someone's going to be out for some other reason, vacations, Mm -hmm. that kind of deal. So they're supportive of our time off. And then, um, like for this interview you know I talked to my talk to my boss and I was like it might run a little bit over I'm not sure he was like of course absolutely do what you got to do and they've been just really really supportive of it if I could give myself full time to my book and marketing and all the processes of it I absolutely do believe that I could go well beyond where I'm at right now um but there's the inverse of that, of course, where I still need to work. And so as far as my experience with the workforce, this is the, the best job that I've been able to find. And I've been here for almost five years now. Okay. Um, it's been really conducive to me having that time. It's basically nine to five. So I go home. I have time to write, still have time to spend with my family, have time to do some marketing. And so it's been, it's been good. But it would be nice to, of course, have that full time mm-hmm. to be able to, to give to the book. Because I do think that it could go far. And I'm really proud of what I've written and I'm proud of everything that, you know, I'm working on now too, but.
0: Yeah. You're an, you're, you're a bit of an anomaly in a couple of ways. As far as I'm concerned, I've read fairly widely in the the self-published world. Um, Mm -hmm. I, I still am probably a little bit closer to the stereotype of believing that self-published work is tending to be inferior Um, And one of the reasons I think that is, is because a lot of self-published people have the mindset that they can't afford to edit. They can't afford Mm -hmm. to get design. They're not willing to put something on a credit card and pay it back over the course of time. They believe the book won't sell um, just a lot of self-limiting beliefs. And so I think that the product then that they put out into Mm -hmm. the world reflects that. Um, Something that's really interesting you shared with me. Offline is that you did do all of the editing in-house without paying for an editor, and that yeah. was something that I really wanted to talk with you about because I think that your book is way way elevated from most self-published work where I thought there was a pretty good chance you had paid for an editor, but mm-hmm. I also noticed a few spots where I was like i I kind of suspect that you might not have yeah. gotten that that extra step to pay for the editor. So I know I'm coming like, at first I'm challenging yeah. your job. Now I'm challenging your editing. Yeah. That is part of the podcast, but I, I want to do you the justice of saying, a, your book was so great. I gave it a sincere five-star rating. I loved that book so much. Everybody listening should go out and get a copy of it right now. The man behind the door. It is a phenomenal story. It's a, an exceptionally realized tale of, of three generations that are all kind of interlinked and, and mm-hmm. cursed, it feels like. And I think yeah. you did a beautiful job telling the story. What do you think would have happened had you paid for a professional edit on it? Do you think that it would have elevated it that next level?
2: I think that it definitely, at the, at the very, very least, it would have saved me a lot of time and grief. Um, <laughs> and I, to say the least, I went through, I mean, it had to be between seven and 10 times of mm-hmm. just, you know, combing through it and getting it in good shape. Um, and, and like you said, I mean, there's always going to be things when you don't pay for that service. Mm-hmm. And even when you do sometimes, sometimes stuff still slips definitely. out. And so, um, there, there's always going to be the benefit of paying for it. And I'm actually going to pay for an editor for my next one. Cause I cannot take the mental stress of going through that book mm-hmm. seven times, 10 times. And so, but I think that it definitely could have helped as far as, um, paying for the editor. I know for a fact, there's at least like 10 or 12 books in existence that aren't as good as they could be because I, I published I I sold a copy to someone and they were like, Hey, I just read it. I read them like one day it was really good. You need to go back through it again. And I was like, okay. So I did that. That was before I actually had physical copies in the store. I'd sold maybe like 10 or 12 of them. And then I, you know, I went back through with a fine tooth comb, took the time to do it. And I feel like that last round where I took my time and I was very conscious, I read out loud. If you're going to do your own editing, read out loud because your brain will auto correct way too much otherwise. And, Mm -hmm. um, I feel like the product that I put out at that point was, you know, as close to perfect as I was going to get it myself. Um, Mm -hmm. I wish I had, you know, worked harder to get that money to to pay for an editor potentially. And I was, um, pretty limiting myself financially. I wasn't putting, I was putting more time into the book, but not enough time into getting the finances together in order to pay for some of those services. Um, you know, I, I paid for, um, uh, sorry, I paid for a software. So I, I mm-hmm. use Vellum for my formatting to make nice. that, to yeah, make I that look very too. professional. Vellum is fantastic. It's uh, amazing. Huge difference from from other self published authors that I've seen. Mm-hmm. Um, it looks almost like off the press from you know from Simon and Schuster or something. And so yeah. that was a huge difference. I used Pro Writing Aid for editing um, <laughs> and have now made the switch to Grammarly and I love Grammarly a lot more only because really? Pro Writing Aid does not have, because you have to load it into the pro writing aid program oh, okay. and they don't show italics. And so oh, that created some problems for me. Cause I used, to, I use italics a lot when I'm, you know, writing a character's thoughts or to mm-hmm. provide emphasis. And so in those events, I'm like going back through my second book, which I'm editing right now. And mm. I'm hoping I'm finding all these instances where the italics aren't exactly where they should be. And I'm
1: oh.
2: adding another level to that. So I switched to Grammarly and I found that, you know, the I'm editing as I go. I've actually got another book that I've started writing in my spare time. I'm mostly focusing on editing, but I've got a third book in the works as crazy nice. as that is. I'm,
0: no, it's not crazy at all.
2: And so I'm actually kind of editing as I go a little bit. I'm reviewing as I go and trying to catch things a little bit more to, to, you know, eliminate some of the grammatical errors that I really struggle with because I write so fast. I miss a lot of pronouns I've noticed and other small
0: mm. words. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. I I can, I can relate to you in that my, my editing, I always think is perfect first time around. And then I go back and realize I've missed a a ton of stuff. I'm actually the classic moron who gets my homophones incorrect. So I will often write T-H-E-R-E when I mean to write T-H-E-I-R. It's just, my brain's going quick enough that like, I know the word, I think the word, my fingers type the closest one to me. Um, I'll I'll make all kinds of mistakes like that. So I I definitely understand. I want to take a quick diversion and ask you, when did you start writing?
2: I've always dabbled in it a little bit. I got really into songwriting for a long time. I play guitar and and bass and drums. And so I would jam with my friends, we'd write songs together. And so I would, you know, write lyrics and my friends would, you know, put them to the music and stuff like that. And I I was always really interested in that. I love music. Music is a huge thing for me. Mm. But um, as far as regular writing, I did a little bit in high school and periodically throughout my life, I've tried to get a book started and then I would, you know, get 10, 15 pages in and, Mm. you know, I'd get to the foothills of that mountain and I always refer to it as mountain because that's what it feels like. You know, I get to the point where I start to climb and I'm like, okay, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know where I'm going. This isn't what I thought it was going to be. And I just kind of stepped back from it Mm. and just let it sit. And, and the man behind the door was my first success for that. And a lot of that is the passion that I felt for it. Mm. Um, I wrote the man behind the door in 2018. I started on December 18th, which is the anniversary of my father's death. Started at that day, kind of as a cathartic experience. And I came home, I wrote for four to five hours a day, every single day after work. I did nothing else for 45 days. And I got a first draft pumped out in that time. And it was it was rough, but uh, the the content was there. I didn't change a lot of details in the book, mm. and the content was there. And then it was just kind of just fine tuning it and eliminating unnecessary senses and and parts. Yeah. But but it was very quick, and that that was that was the point where I started writing. Really, was in in twenty eighteen. And so I've been writing ever since then. And I'm starting to pick up more steam now, again, now that I'm more motivated. I put my book out and I'm like, okay, I got to, I want to keep going and I'm excited about it and hearing good things about it. Mm -hmm. And so it's motivating me a lot to keep going. So,
0: yeah. And you talked to me offline about Stephen King is a fairly big influence for you. When did you start reading him?
2: So I was probably uh, maybe 12 or 13. I remember the first book I picked up from him. Um, I, you know, I've, i worked through the Eccleons of, of reading as a kid. I, you know, was reading Harry Potter at a kind of young age to be reading that. And I was continually looking into different things and reading different stuff. And I remember the first book I ever read was The Gunslinger by Stephen King. That was the first adult book I ever read. Wow. And I was hooked from the, from the moment that I read that. And so uh, the, the series ended right about the time that I finished book six. So I managed to get book seven, you know, go through the whole series pretty much in one row. Mm-hmm. And and that was a huge inspiration for me. I King was the, my first adult author, author, mm-hmm. and even to this day, um, as as much as I talk about him, like I love King, I feel that sometimes he's a little overrated. His name is definitely.
0: Oh, no, uh, don't do say that! Come on.
2: I have an entire bookshelf of Stephen King books. I yeah. own virtually every Stephen King book I can get my hands on in hardcover. And he's, he's absolutely my favorite, but then there, there are other books that I read and I'm like, yeah, it's good. But is it, you know, is a dark tower. Good. Is it dead zone? Good. And, right. and that's, there, there's just a, there's a, with anybody that's pumped out that much in that many books, there's just always going to be books that are better.
0: Yeah. And, but that, what you said, I, and I want to stop there real quick because one, yeah. he's a huge influence for you. And two, mm-hmm. I really, I feel strongly that, you know, I don't, I don't want, anybody to give into the idea that just because someone's been super successful, that that makes them overrated. Sure. I agree with you. Not every book that Stephen King has written has been as good for me as it was. It is probably Mm -hmm. at the top for me in terms of, of how it builds and all of the concepts in it and the, the huge swings that he takes. The stand is amazing. I agree with you. I really like the dark tower series, some amazing, amazing books. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and then he wrote apt pupil, which is a novella inside of different Mm -hmm. seasons and that one made me physically angry. I hated that story. It was, it was a miss for me, but I don't look at him and think, okay, he wrote something that I hate. Therefore, like I'm going to diminish his reputation. I think he's the greatest living writer. And I think that people typically who take shots at him are jealous. I think that they quit a long time before he did.
2: I think, and I think that's fair too. I think that, um, I just don't think that he's the, the you know the perfect author that some fans make him out to be. Mm. And that's what I mean when I say overrated. He's he, I absolutely agree with you that he's the best living author. Like I said, I've got virtually every single book that he's written um, short of the really, really expensive hardcovers that are hard to come by. And yeah. so so uh, his, his novel, The Drawing of the Three, book two in Dark Tower series, is probably like a good portion of the reason that I'm a writer. Though mm. the work that he did that in true. The Drawing of the Three was just fantastic and from that moment i like really really solidified like hey i want to be a writer and i remember um i would tell all the people that in high school i would tell people hey i want to be a writer They're like okay but what's your Mm -hmm. day job gonna be and i was like well i don't know that yet but i want to be a writer and i those things of course kind of limited my mindset a little bit you know i didn't didn't take the time Mm -hmm. to write so much like i should have and i didn't really believe that it was an option yeah and so um And and I mean, it's, it's a valid point of view to have, you know, you, you need a day job, but also it was, it was um, hard to hear when you want to be a writer. It's hard to dedicate yourself to that. And when I, I think that the, what set me apart and allowed me to do it at all was that the man behind the door was not an intention to become an author. It was Hmm. purely for me. I had no intention of actually putting it out into the world necessarily when I was writing it. I didn't sit down and say, Hey, I'm going to write a book and I'm going to publish it. I was like, I'm going to write my dad's story. I'm going to build a fictional story now, around it. And...
0: That's, so I, I want to stop there a little bit because for okay. me, I, I feel like, I feel like maybe I feel like you're, you're speaking a narrative that's not necessarily fully there. Cause on one, one hand you're telling me that you wanted to be a writer from, from a pretty young age that yes. there are some books that influence you. You want to be a writer. So, maybe you don't have designs on selling the man behind the door to a million people at the time you're writing. Maybe you have low pressure. Maybe you're thinking we'll see where this goes, but I choose not to believe that you didn't have somewhere in your mind that you were going to publish that book. I don't think that you take on the whole project, even though it is so near and dear to you. I don't think you take that project on in that way, unless you think somewhere in the back of your head, like I could publish this. This is a, this is a killer good story.
2: Well, and you know, when I was writing it, I up until maybe the three quarters of the way through, I wasn't even sure that I would finish it. Like I said mm. before, I've started so many books, yeah. I, you know, I, I've just kind of lost track of it and I've lost faith in the story that I was telling. Mm-hmm. Um, I've changed this now, but before I, I used to never do any outlining, I, I'm mm. a f- firm believer in you know, winging it, raw dogging it, going for it, yeah, me too. And so, um, and and that's what I do with the man behind the door, but it worked. It was, a, I I formed the story so easily for me. And then maybe it's because it was so personal and that I, you know, I had that, that inspiration, but after doing that, and about three quarters of the way through, I was like, I feel like I really have something here. Um, I kept going and I finished it. And I think from the point that I finished it, I was like, okay, I think I'm going to do something with this. But when I started it and all the way through until I would even say three quarters of the way through, I really wasn't, didn't think I was even going to finish it, let alone publish
0: it. Yeah. Okay. I can, I can, I can hang with that, but still, I mean, you're, you're continuing on it because you're thinking if I can do this, right. I mean, is there something inside you that's thinking if I can accomplish this, I'd love to share it with the world.
2: Um. Yeah.
0: Uh, No,
2: I think that maybe somewhere deep down, I wasn't a conscious thought for sure. I, like I said, it was 100% about my dad and catharsis for me. It was, um, it was really rough. It was the 10 year anniversary for me. And so, so I was sitting there and I kind of, you know, in the last three or four years before that, I started to develop a little bit more understanding for him. Of course, before I was very angry about how everything Mm -hmm. went down and, and the lack of relationship that we had and just the whole situation was so poor. And so I was angry for a long time, but as I've gotten older, I've realized I'm a lot like him in some ways, Mm -hmm. and it's kind of helped me grow an understanding of him and, uh, Part of it is regret. Part of it is guilt. That's what really motivated me. I was like, I want to tell his story in a different lens because yeah. if you just look at the straight facts with no, no information behind it, no, no context, it looks like he's almost the villain of the story. That's, that's part mm-hmm. of the reason why the man behind the door is structured the way it is, because it's, you know, while it's, you know, a psychological thriller, there's some horror elements, but I think the mm-hmm. central theme of it is definitely the mystery of of who Lee was and what he did and, mm-hmm. And that was a driving force for me, because that's kind of how I approached it, because that's how most people would view my dad.
0: Yeah, you, you you know what you did such a good job with is that for me as a reader, and I've read your book mm-hmm. twice now, I think I'm going to dive into it one more time to just really awesome. like break everything down. But to me, I, I still look at Lee as being the most likable character in the book. I Absolutely. really, really like Lee. Um, I liked him from the first moment that he's on the page. And so I think even when he does despicable, horrible things and he does some really despicable, horrible things, yeah. I had so much understanding of where he was coming from. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things, too, that I really related to, and I, I, I think I emailed you about this privately, but he kind of gets into and I'm not going to give too much of the plot away, but he kind of gets into heroin through abusing Vicodin. Um, and so that's a relatable thing to me. When my wife had our first son, uh, mm-hmm. she was prescribed Vicodin and I'd had it once for wisdom teeth. And I knew that I really enjoyed that feeling and I abused mm-hmm. it. Um, I abused it to the point where the Tylenol made me sick and I, I vomited yeah. and a horrible, horrible experience, but just like the relatability of, of that yeah. moment when he says like he could do this for the rest of his life, every day for the rest of his life, yeah. that feeling of euphoria. I'm kind of curious, and and you don't have to share anything you don't want to, but did you have any personal experience there that informed how you wrote that? Or did you just see it and understand it sort of so contextually?
2: I, I saw it a lot. So my entire immediate family was addicted to opioids at that time. And so I was, I'm the only person in my immediate family that has never touched opioids. Even when I got my wisdom teeth out, I just sucked it up and sat in the basement and cried while trying to eat mac and cheese. That's just, that was just, <laughs> that was just the, the path that I took because I didn't even want to touch it. Um, yeah. I didn't even really drink for the longest time because I just, with the history that my family has, I was so, so scared of it. Mm-hmm. But, um, just, uh, just from what I witnessed, like I, I would see, I would hear, you know, my family talk about it. Um, or, you know, I'd see the tail end of it after the abuse occurred, after the usage occurred. And just like, I can imagine what they were experiencing just by, you know, looking at their faces. Mm. And, and so, um, I have a lot of, you know, I was, I guess it's firsthand, secondhand experience, but, yeah, but that was really what inspired that is that I know that, the from the, from the start, you know, the euphoric feeling is, you know, the, the driving force. And then from there, it's the, Mm -hmm. the, the fear of the withdrawals.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I have a, a monster admiration for you to be able to write that compassionately about something that that wrecked your own family. Um, mm-hmm. Because there is no sense of judgment in any of, of, of your book. I think it would have failed. I wouldn't be talking to you right now yeah. if I if I read into any of the book as a sense of judgment. Like you you come at it 100% from a sense of exploration. And It's, it's a, it's a beautifully done thing. You know, it's really funny thinking back on, on your book because the, the bits that I would probably edit would all be from a style perspective. And that's sort Mm. of some of the things that gave off. There were a couple of moments where I felt like I would have like clipped out a a piece of cliched language or a moment where it's just like a smidge too long, but to have done Mm. what you did without professional help. I, I, I want to say again, just absolutely amazing. Um, now, my next question for you is getting outside of the world of, of the pharmacy, mm-hmm. how do you want to get this book into more hands? Because I think that it would be a, a really selfish choice on your part not mm-hmm. to do as much as you can to get this book as broadly read as possible. It's a commentary on the opioid crisis. It's a commentary on the bonds of family. It's a commentary, I think, really spiritually, which we haven't even touched on, but there is a absolute spiritual element to this book that Mm -hmm. is really important. And it's not, again, not judgmental. Like there's no specific religion in the book, but there's a Uh real spiritual, I think, worldview about Mm. what happens uh, with haunting and things like that. So all of that to say, how are you going to find your reader? How are you going to get the book in their hands? Uh, I do
2: as much as I can. I used to focus a lot more on Twitter and I'm kind of moving away from that as far as, you know, the the writer's lift, that kind of thing. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, I got a couple of sales from that, but it wasn't a whole lot of success with it. Um, I, I'm listening to your podcast a lot. It's, it's fantastic. And it's really mm-hmm. kind of changing the way that I'm thinking of stuff. Um, you know, obviously, you know, you talk about how when you were, you know, directly asking, you saw such a large influx of people coming in, and Huge. so the 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 month before this one, I sold maybe eight books across the board um, through the pharmacy. wasn't really pushing it a lot. It was busy. You know, I have a million excuses for why I wasn't just talking about it. And so, so after you know our first conversation and checking out your podcast, I was kind of like, oh man, I feel a little personally attacked here. But in a good way, because it's a it's the kick in the butt that all of us need as independently published people. um, It's like low risk, but low reward if we don't put in the time, you know, we don't have to worry about deadlines and we don't have to worry about if we invested money into, you know, uh, hybrid publishing like with Dorrance or Olympia, that kind of deal. Anybody Mm -hmm. that published the way that that I did it, we had such a low financial risk involved. And then. Mm if we don't push it, there's that low reward that comes with it because we have no one behind us necessarily doing it for us. Mm-hmm. And so I, you know, I took that to heart. And so this month um, I, my pay cycle with my job is where I staggered it with my um, Amazon royalties. Mm-hmm. So I get, I go from the 16th through the 15th. So it comes in the middle of the month. And so from the 16th through the 15th, I sold like eight books just in the nice. last two days, I've sold seven books just because I'm talking about it and pointing. Yeah pointing it out to people and saying, Hey, while you're waiting for your shot, go check out my book. I self-published it. If it's something for you, let me know. I'll sign it for you. And I'd be happy to get this in your hands. And I mean, I've sold solid amount of books. It has to be up towards of 26 or 27 already this month, which is close to our, to my best month since I started selling them here.
0: That's awesome, man. You can still, you can still 10 X that, that number for sure. Yeah. Um, without, without, without spending a bunch of money on advertising, you're still, yeah. you're still at the grassroots spot where just getting yeah. out there, um, you can sell a lot of copies. So I don't know how deeply you've dug into the podcast. There's definitely people who are listening to this for the first time and deciding whether they want to listen to this show, but I'd ask you the next question. And you're right, by the way, I did personally attack. I'm, I'm out to attack anybody yeah. self-publishing right now. Absolutely. Who's not treating this like a business because I, I view our responsibility as authors and self-published authors in many cases to give the proper reputation to this mm-hmm. business. Yeah. Um, I'm tired of hearing people from academia and the publishing houses talk down about self-publishing because I actually believe mm-hmm. um, for anybody who's willing to treat it like a business, this is mm-hmm. a lucrative career. It's an opportunity to Absolutely. share truth with the, the the broader audience. So I'm really passionate about that, but have you thought about something like knocking on doors and asking people to buy your book?
2: <laughs> I actually just listened to that episode as far as like going from door to door. And I was like, that would, that would take a little bit. It would take a couple of times to get used to that, like break the cherry yep. once. And then like, it would still be awkward. I, I remember yeah. I just did my first book signing a couple months ago. And I remember sitting there and the first person I asked you, I was like, uh, buh, buh, uh, 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 yeah. buh, buh. the first time I was like, so nervous. And I was like, and then they were, I, you know, I got into a groove a little bit. I gave my spiel. I would say as a self-published person, like a two sentence spiel about your book is like the most valuable thing you'll ever have. Yeah. Because it's, it's huge difference. You can hook them in two sentences and then you have however long to talk about it beyond that. Mm. Um, but I managed to get my spiel out and they looked at it and I talked to them a little bit about it and they each picked one up. And from there, it was so much nice. easier. I felt so much more comfortable. Cause it's like, all right, I'm in a strange place. I just talked to strangers. I succeeded. Let's keep that going. And so, yeah. um, I, I think that one thing that's I think really hard for self-published people is uh, uh, putting yourself out there the first time and then not letting yourself get really downtrodden when you don't succeed that first time. Because yes. I can't tell you, I mean, when I first started selling at work, I you know I would show people the book and they would like you know put it down, and then my regulars started coming in and they were picking it up because they were like, "Oh, I know this guy." Right. And from their um, word of mouth spreads, I mean, I I've had some surreal experiences. I had um, I had my my mom works in. And the school system in this area and she said she you know, she's a librarian she was doing her introduction um of herself like just talking about herself and she had my picture mm-hmm. for my book signing some kid was like hey my mom's reading that book and i was like <laughs> nice. super super surreal so um, yeah knowing that i have like it's upwards of 250 260 270 now mm-hmm. out and about i have to crunch my numbers since i have so many books at different places but um sure. With it being out that that far, word of mouth is starting to get out, and I'm starting to hear, oh yeah, I borrowed your book from somebody, or oh yeah, nice. you know, it's it's starting to spread in this area, but I really yeah. want to expand beyond that.
0: So yeah, absolutely. I think I think that you need to. Um, so and and just for anybody who is listening in for you as well, I don't see mm-hmm. door knocking as being the way to write a, a, a bestseller or to to sell yeah. a bestseller. There is something that happens inside of you. Each time that you confront a stranger, and I use that word really intentionally confront because at first it feels like a confrontation, but every time you do it, then you realize the worst thing that somebody can do is close a door in my face. And that's not so bad. And I also want to say on that point of view, your book, as much as it's amazing, is not for everyone. There are some people who won't love your book. Mm -hmm. That experience as well is I think think that it, it lightens and frees you when you realize that Your book just isn't meant for everyone. I think your book's meant for an awful lot of people though. I do think that you have a a really mass appeal and not because it's commercial, but because you, you managed to tackle, um, some really deep themes in a super action packed way. So there's uh, even hints of romance in the book that I think are kind of fun, um, Mm -hmm. So what's the next thing to get outside of your town and your city? What are the kind of things that you're willing to do? You talked about readings. Where can you put yourself in front of people where you can ask for that next sale, do you think?
2: So that's something that I've been really looking into. Um, Unfortunately, I got into marketing this too late. I was actually just listening to the episode that you have about when you start marketing late. And yeah. I, you know, I was like, well, this one is really for me because I put my book out in the world and I did like some Facebook ads and some minor stuff, but I didn't do enough of it to begin with. I didn't, I didn't mm-hmm. build an audience at first. And so now I'm working to do that. Um, I, I applied for some of the book festivals in West Virginia and I nice. applied too late. So I'm not oh, going to get okay. in this year, but that's, um, that's something that I'm going to look into doing next year. Next, by this time next year, I'll have another book out for sure. So I'll be able to take two books with me. And go. I'm going to be planning on on getting in front of people there. And those people that go out there, of course, they're just to find books to read. So I think mm-hmm. that as long as I am, am talking to people and confident, I think that I'll have some pretty good success. But yeah. the reason that I listen to your podcast and I'm here is because, you know, I'm here for guidance because I'm very new to this and trying to figure it out. So um yeah starting to do the TikTok thing. I think I'm actually going to do a series on, t- on TikTok about, nice. you know, just kind of my experiences with self-publishing, you know, what I've done on my own and just to mm. discuss, you know, what I've done and what hasn't worked and what has worked, you know, warn people, pay for editing services, pay for cover design. Yeah. But if you can't do that, if you absolutely can't, this is what I did. Um, and I mean, it's, All those services you should pay for, but I put the amount of hours that I put in to make sure my products, you know, looked professional. Um, I don't know how many people would be willing to do that. I mean, my cover design alone, I spent probably 10 or 12 hours just tweaking it and playing with it and trying to make it look professional. And, you know, so I could have paid someone else to do that and it probably would have turned out even better. Of course, Um, I, I love my cover. I think it fits the book fantastic, but but there's always just so much more benefit for having that professionally done. And so Yeah. I am just looking for any way to do it. And I think, you know, I kinda wanna give back to the community too. One of the reasons why I want to do that. Um inspired by you for that, because this this podcast is just fantastic. Like I've said that Thanks. a couple of times already, but but you know, going from selling eight books in one month to twenty seven books because I started listening to you and I was like, you know, this guy's right. I'm not doing enough. I'm kind of being, you know, lazy or at least unmotivated. And that's yeah, you know, I you know, I, you know, would like to do that
0: for other people too. Good. And you can, I think, I think the biggest foundation, and even though we did talk about the editing aspect, the biggest foundation is that your book is supremely readable. If you don't have that, all the marketing efforts in the world will fail you. Because like you said, the first couple that you put out, people read it and they're like, this is good, but you really need to go back through it. And if you lose that momentum, there's just nothing you can do. The, The cards are stacked against you at that point. Um, Yeah, you're right. So on in in terms of like uh, paid ads for Facebook, Amazon, some of those things really help you that you don't Mm -hmm. actually have to go or be somewhere. One of the other things and I'd I'd encourage you as we're kind of wrapping up here Mm -hmm. is look at Twitter right now as the world's best search engine. Um, Twitter is better than any other place. And I hope that that stays the same. It sounds like Elon's maybe back into buying Twitter. So I don't know what changes might be coming down the pike. Um, I'm not making any kind of commentary on how I feel about it, but just that things will probably change if ownership does officially change Yeah. right now. If you go on Twitter, you would want to look up Stephen King. You would want to look up Sean Hamill. You would want to look up, um, Oh shoot, Chuck Wendig. Those are yeah. three authors. I don't know if my my review of your book has come through yet, and you've seen it or not. But I think that your book has really strong elements of all three of those writers in it. And you want to go and find the people that are following all three of those authors and start to intentionally build relationships with those people because those are your readers. And that's Got the it. next level. That's the next direct ask is saying Stephen King's a little tougher because, like I said. He started out as the, the the master of horror. And I think at yeah. this point, honestly, he's a literary writer. He writes some Absolutely. thrillers, he writes some suspense, not really much horror at all. Fairy yeah. tale, I mean, good grief. He covers a lot of ground. So he's tougher to mine followers for, yeah. you know, especially because of his movies. But Sean Hamill, Chuck Wendig would be two yeah. great authors for you to check into and start to build relationships with those people who follow him. Yeah. Um, and then you're one step away from asking that person, Hey, buy my book. And you know, they're going to like it because the quality yeah. is there. And the story resonates with things that, you know, they already like.
2: And how would you recommend building those relationships? How would you, you know, breaking the ice and starting that process?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for asking. It's actually a super easy process. It's low risk at first, because the only Mm -hmm. thing you have to do is go to Chuck Wendig's page, for example, and it'll say followers. So click on followers. And then you do want to scroll through any of the verified people or the people with big audiences, because that usually is how Twitter prefers to list people. So get a little ways down in and you'll see just everyday people. And in their bios, it'll say reader or such and such. And and you kind of identify that person looks like somebody who's here because they're a fan of. stuff. So you click on their profile, you look at their posts, comment mm-hmm. on a post retweet. If you're able to, I don't personally retweet, but if, if you feel okay, retweeting something, cause yeah. it's good enough. Otherwise comment, like follow, and then just yeah. do that comment, like follow, and people will start to follow you back. Then they'll see your tweets. They'll start interacting with you. Okay. Uh, So that's, that's what I did to build kind of the, the core of my Twitter following. And at Mm -hmm. some point it becomes sustainable because your tweets, your interactions are all so targeted around your brand, your genre, what you're trying to accomplish that the conversation gets organic, but that's how to start it. And you'll be, you'll be really surprised how quickly you have an opportunity to comfortably ask somebody, Hey, would you check out my book? So,
1: yeah.
0: OK, so talk to me last but not least about because you you've opened up saying basically, mm-hmm. hey, I see working for the pharmacy for the foreseeable future, possibly the rest of eternity. And yeah. I want to know from you, what kind of things in your mind can you do to give this book more than you already are? What are the what are the things that maybe aren't sacrificed, but are are just what you're able to do? Um,
2: I think that that marketing more directly is something that i really should start doing like like what you were just talking about i i do like the i've been doing the writer's list for a while and i've kind of gotten away from that i started doing you know tiktok trying to build an audience there not necessarily you know pushing my book the entirety of the time but just trying you know talking about my likes my dislikes you know a lot of my tiktok videos are stephen king because i love stephen king Mm -hmm. um and, and now I'm going to start talking just about my experiences with self-publishing because while I might just, you know, be only at the very tip of the iceberg, I've, I've had experience doing so much on my own that I think that someone else that was in my position, I can kind of, you know, guide them away from the things that I did that didn't work um, and save them maybe time on certain things. You know, I deep dove Reddit for hours and hours and hours mm. at different times, watching YouTube videos, different things. And yeah. so I, Am looking maybe to, you know, build an audience by kind of giving back at the same time, because I, I wish that I could have, you know, found somebody that, you know, really was, you know, educated and, and mm-hmm. with the information, you know, or at least experience I guess not educated, but yeah. experienced with what, what I was trying to do, because it was just very daunting. And, yeah. and, and you were talking about self-published, you know, self-publishing, you know, I read so many self-published books trying to, you know, kind of get a grip for it. And, um, and I I know what you mean by how you feel about inferior. It's, it's, it's tough because unfortunately, you know, people have a vision, um, but they aren't willing, you know, they either can't make the financial sacrifices or aren't willing to. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's, it's tough. And so, um, you know, I put a lot of work in to compensate that. And my, I think, you know, my end product shows that, but it's still not where it could be. And yep. so I, I've I've read maybe a handful of self-published books that I really felt were like incredible. I read this one guy, his name's Kiefer Lane. He's out of Alaska. He wrote a book called Low Spirits. Absolutely fantastic. One of my favorite horror novels I've ever read. Um, It's it's not, you know, it's the same situation. You know, he did the same thing that I did. Um, Mm -hmm. he did pay for a cover design, I think, but I mean, his story is fantastic. It's all a metaphor for depression and mental illness within like, like a demon ghost story thing. And I, I read it in one sitting. I haven't read a book in one sitting in so long. I read it in one sitting, 350 pages or something like that. And it was fantastic. So, um, that kind of really motivated me too. I was like, okay, you know, there are obviously some really great people doing this. And I was like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go forward with it.
0: Nice, man. That's really good. Okay. So for everybody listening, I think we're going to get you a few a few book sales from this podcast, which is always exciting. Tell them where you want them to find it. Do you want them to just pick up a copy off of Amazon or is there a special bookstore that you like them to order it from?
2: Um, so uh, you can get it from Amazon. Um, it's also available on Audible.
0: Yes. Your narrator's um, so good, by the way. I, let's actually stop real quick because who is that yeah. narrator?
2: His name is Andrew Perella. I found yeah. him through ACX. We did the royalty share option Okay. So, um, cause, cause audio, I was looking at audio books like, man, this is crazy expensive. Yeah. And so I was, I was kind of evaluating what my options were, and, and considering it's my first book, I was like, you know, I, I feel very confident with this. Mm-hmm. I feel like it's going to, something's going to come of it. But at the same time, I'm so hesitant to spend $3,000 on audiobook production. Yeah. So I did the royalty share option, which is, um, basically you just split what your royalties would be down the middle with whoever reads your book. Wow. That's and really a really good deal. absolutely if i sell 10 million copies it sucks
0: but (laughs) well it's still 50 percent of 10 million copies which is
1: you're both doing
2: really
0: well at that point okay
2: but um but but i found him through some different auditioning i actually was going through different narrators and listening to their samples and i found him and queried with him and said hey i would i would really love for you to read you know
1: Mm -hmm. my audition
2: for the my audition scene for this and he read it and the last line of my audition scene, he absolutely nailed it. was a line from Lee and it mm-hmm. gave me chills, brought tears to my eyes. It was, yeah. the, it was perfect. And I said, okay, yes. this is my man right here. So uh, really, I was really, really fortunate reader. to find him.
1: Yeah, He, really, he nailed
2: really it. His inflection, his, his, his performance of Lee, especially really just mm-hmm. solidified it for me.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So uh, we can get it on Audible. We can get it on Amazon, anywhere else that you want people to go. Um, I actually am selling it from my website as well, William F. Okay. Great Um,
2: and I'm signing those copies.
0: Perfect.
2: Um, so, it's, uh, so it's the $14.99 plus $2 for the taxes in my area and then the shipping costs. So it's a little bit more pricey than Amazon, but you get a, an additional, you get a signature on it. And I also have a artist that I work with that I have uh, made some bookmarks. I printed some bookmarks yeah, of her work. Those. So I'm going to be promoting those, her work by sending them with her
0: with my books. So Awesome. That is a good deal. Anybody listening should go straight to the website and get the book there with the bookmarks. So that is fantastic. I'm really glad we talked. I love your book. I'm going to continue to uh, promote your book from time to time just because I, I really feel that. passionate that people should be reading it. And uh, I look forward to, to staying in touch and seeing how this thing develops.
2: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No, I'm super excited for it. Thanks, man.